You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And Neil, you have been doing some thinking about how children are impacted by artificial intelligence. And I just wanted to start by asking you today on this episode, do you believe that children are our future? I think if we teach them well and let them lead the way, (laughs) couldn't resist that. No, um, I think thinking once again is a strong word, um, but I've been doing some talking about it. And actually, I was at a really interesting event um, that Bill Thompson invited me to. That was yesterday, Monday, uh, and it's going to go out on Radio 4 tomorrow, a panel session on children and how they are affected by AI. Ah, and Bill Thompson is is a technology reporter with the BBC, is that correct? Yes, and he uh, he runs a widely listened to podcast called Digital Planet. So he put together this tech conference or puts together a year this tech conference at the BBC, and we had a panel this year on AI and how it's affecting children. Uh, it's going to be broadcast on a show called The Media Show. Nice. And was it how AI is, how like tools are affecting children or how children see their world being changed by AI? What, what were we looking at? We're looking at the impact on the population or how the population is is like feeling impacted? It was a sort of combination of things. So we had a panel that included uh, Naira Van Zalk, uh, who's at the Dyson School of Design Engineering in Imperial. She's a psychologist. And it was really great to meet her because in the green room beforehand, uh, I was just connecting on so many things. She's very interested in the design of these systems and how they we improve the way that they interact with human users, which I think is also the future alongside the children. That that's if we're going to get AI to be working in practice, we need people who are working at that interface of understanding how humans interact or react from technology and how we can improve technology to improve the quality of those actions or reactions. There was Anne Longfield, who is uh, the Children's Commissioner, which is, a, I think, quite a senior UK government post worrying about children's issues. And Hannah Aden, who's a documentary filmmaker, and also um, I think by the panel was being representing a younger person's point of view, a younger person's perspective, someone who's grown up with these technologies around her and influencing her. A panel discussion amongst us, uh, which was opened by, they asked me for a definition of machine learning. Uh, So I gave that it's a data-driven technology and that sort of pushed the conversation very quickly into being much more about data. It was a very interesting panel discussion. A lot of the points that I would have raised were being raised by other panel makers. So Nero was sort of talking about the challenges with not being able to understand the impacts of the very rapidly moving data ecosystem. So this is something, and I said in the show, that I would call the big data paradox, which is this sort of notion that we're getting more and more data about more and more people, but we seem unable to understand society any better. So we're almost losing our understanding of society. So you see that in a number of areas. You see that in polls predicting elections that we're not managing to make accurate 
predictions, despite measuring people in more ways or having more access to information about people. Uh, you see it in medicine, where we're trying to stratify medical treatments and apply them to individuals. Uh, so I think that challenge is at the heart of our ability to judge the impact, particularly on, say, children. One of the points I was thinking about making but never got the chance to make is, well, on, on the positive side, our kids lose interest in particular social media networks so quickly that you know, the moment we think, oh, Facebook's damaging, and by the time we're all caught up with like the Cambridge Analytica scandal, kids are all going, face what? Oh, how old are you? They have herd immunity, and they're totally uninterested. What do you say, daddy-o as well, and groovy? <laughs> cool, man. I, I, I learned TikTok, I think, is a big thing now. I, I really have any idea. I kind of have a sense of what Snapchat is. And I tried asking my 12-year-old, and he said, I, I can't, he didn't use the word lame because that word's out. He used some word... I understood the meaning, but I can't reconstruct. Oh, God. Oh, no. So I think that's a really big challenge is if you can't measure the impact of these very rapidly moving technologies. Anne sort of raised this point. She said, well, the, another problem is that the tech companies aren't transparent, so they don't want to share the data. And then I, I said something that may uh, get me into trouble because everyone, people were like, whoa, what are you saying? So I was trying to point out that you might think that they're just being obscure, but I believe that they don't understand their platforms themselves. And that did freak everyone out. You can see the whole panel. Like, like the panel did a sort of collective, what? And then I'm sort of left with, okay, now I have like some 30-second segment to try and explain the nuances of what I'm saying here. Because actually for the first time, I was introduced as the deep mind professor. And well, I... Well, and that's, yeah, that's weird. Actually, I heard today, I was uh, I overheard someone talking about the department and they were gesturing to my office and my office door was open and they said, that's the deep mind guy. So now I'm referred to by shorthand. You know, I shouted back, what do you mean I'm the talking machines person? <laughs> yes, yes, no deep mind guy, talking machines person. Yes, very important distinction. Yes. Talking machines person. So there, there was, I'd been introduced. So I was, and this, some, this happens. If you are representing academic machine learning in a diverse panel of people coming from different perspectives, one of the things you'll find happening to yourself, which is a little bit difficult to deal with, is you will be conflated with big tech. Because in most societal debates, there's no separation. And I think that's quite hard for those of us who are doing academic machine learning. There's no, because we, we have a quite a distinct understanding of the questions we thought about and cared about and think, well, we thought about this. We have people doing fairness. We have people doing this. We have reports that we wrote six years ago before you woke up to any of this saying these things. No one cares. No, basically no one cares because the main voice they hear is a bunch of people that have done startup companies have been doing machine learning for two years and sort of a, are sowing the seeds of a magical technology. So that's the voice of the tech world. So whatever you think, people looking at you as a sort of nuanced person who's been caring about these subjects, forget it. All they see is that there's this conflation. So when I sort of said this thing, well, tech companies themselves don't understand, you know, you, you worry about what the effect is. But I do think it's true that the what we're deploying is so complex because we were talking about things like regulation, 
that often comes up. And I'm not against regulation, but I just worry that, that some of the regulation ideas people have are so naive and so unlikely to deliver anything and will push push us into a point where we're doing more harm than good. So, so I tried to give sort of analogy. Well, at first I tried to describe why people don't understand their own systems because the complexity and the, the side effects, the downstream effects. What I should have really added is that the systems are integrated with society. So, so a full understanding of the system would understand the feedback effects which I, I refer to as information dynamics. Rod Murray Smith has a really interesting project on this. He called it closed loop machine learning. And actually, Nira was there, who's working on this sort of thing. What is the effect of the thing you've deployed on society itself? Could that cause some sort of oscillation? We know that happens in a closed loop system. So I was trying to sort of clarify that and then also trying to say, look, I'm not against regulation of big tech because I was also asked, what are that these big, companies you know and don't we have to do something to control them with all this data and i'm in sort of two minds about that on one side as i sort of said very large companies such as google facebook and amazon are bringing capabilities to small independent companies that they never had access to before so you could now you know you can start a little company like made in cambridge chocolates you only have to make them, right? And then you you just you can advertise on Google and Facebook, and you can hit a worldwide audience. You can distribute on Amazon. But you can actually choose something you want to do that, like thirty years ago, you just couldn't have done. And I think that's very very positive. But at the same time, you there is a system of sort of large scale companies, and the question is, well, you know, they 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 get a lot of power and people want to think about how to regulate so the best analogy I, I i had for talking about regulation was think of it as taking a drug to cure a, a symptom one that doesn't cure the disease so a lot of if, if you take a drug that's curing your symptoms that may be okay but it will trigger side effects or even if it is fixing the disease it may trigger side effects and at some point those side effects can become worse than the disease itself for certain drugs and i think that that's the type of subtlety of thinking that we need around these things uh, and i one problem is and actually this wasn't very true of this panel it was a great panel i mean afterwards we were like yeah we should do this all the time you know i don't know with each other uh but i think one problem with these debates is they get into these it's very easy to sort of invent regulations that are unlikely to work uh, and the one that I'm actually quite worried about is, and I, I mentioned this in the show, is that this the, one of the things that is a forcing function for large companies is they are customer facing. So it's bad publicity if they're doing things that are not in line with the interests of people. The danger is you could create a legislation regulation that separates that. So there is a problem with alignment. I think particularly with advertising, you're not necessarily aligned with your customers interests if your main business is advertising because you're effectively trying to get them to do things that they didn't at least they didn't know they wanted to do and often that maybe they didn't want to do so there's a challenge there but there's a pressure that these are public facing companies that if they mess it up and and that's i think why you get a lot of response to the debate from google and facebook if you were to establish legislation that would mean that this was all pushed into a darker space one where we couldn't see what was going on, you would get 
probably deeper challenges than we're facing at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Or or even worse, if you felt the problem was understood in one way or regulators feel like they've got a good grasp on the problem if it's one way, but it's actually like slightly to the left of that. And then you've got this terrible drift that no one is paying attention to because they think they're paying attention to the right thing. I feel like when, when we have these conversations, it can be focused on what we know now, right? Was there? Do you think there was any sort of useful... Yeah, what is it like with the, the weather channel in the States? Yeah. Don't you guys have forecasts? All it does is tell you the weather right. now. I mean, that's kind of like, okay, I can look outside. Don't we actually. have a better predictive system for this already? You know. Yeah, I think... That, and that's one of the points I... I think I heard Rodney Brooks making it first, and I have mercilessly stolen it from him, that it's difficult to regulate things that don't exist. And I, But I think the follow-up point I make is we can't even regulate the things that exist today properly. And we struggle with that. It doesn't mean the good regulation isn't possible, but it's one of those things. And I, I'm often using soccer analogies, uh, the round ball game, but it applies to any ball sport because the dynamics of these systems are where you've got two entities, one of which the time constant is short, i.e. the ball, it can move quickly and one where the time constant is slow, i.e. the players. So the players cannot move as fast as the ball and the dynamics of many ball sports are based around that. And that involves anticipation. So when you look at a soccer team that's playing well, they're not chasing the ball. I like using this analogy a lot. They're spread out in the right place. You've got something that can move much quicker, which is technology. And regulation can move slower. Now, Nesta, which is an organization in the UK, I think that they call it anticipatory regulation. And I think I, that has the right sense to it. I believe you cannot pre-regulate, you cannot predict the future, but I, I like the fact that I think they use that word. I hope they use that word because I think that that's the right sense. It's anticipation of where things are likely to be. And um, positioning the regulation or getting ready with ideas that, that are there because with these it is true with that while things are quite slow moving in general when they move they can move very quickly so there's often a window of opportunity to get something done and if you haven't done the preparatory work to deal with all the sort of consequences you will miss that window of opportunity so it's i mean that's the, that's kind of the same as like when the ball does come to the striker they have a moment to get the timing right to knock it in so they better have done a lot of practice Yes, it's going to be a half-hour show. I think we spoke for about 45 minutes, and it'll be cut back to half-hour, and I will be out on Wednesday the 9th of October at 4.30 UK time, and so it will be out before this episode. So it is out. It's there now. Go to the media show's website. Well, we will have a link to that BBC radio piece on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. So, Neil, our question this week for, for Talking Machines is is sort of a general one, but I, I have something specific that I want to talk about. Um, so Ada Lovelace Day was October 8th. Ada Lovelace, fascinating person, computer scientist, pioneer, daughter of Lord Byron, which I think which I think is like very cool and interesting to think about. So our, our question this week was, is there anything cool going on that you know of for Ada Lovelace Day? And there is a, a specific thing that I'd like to talk about. 
the Alan Turing Institute has launched a platform, Women in Data Science and AI. It's sort of a, a sort of a project. And they did it on Ada Lovelace Day. And so I, I think it's like kind of a, a reason to have the announcement, but it's still a thing happening on Ada Lovelace Day. And I think that it's pretty it's pretty cool. So it's a um, a place where you can explore research and uh, look at different topics. And it's all focused on women in data science and artificial intelligence. And the website, Bear with me now. We'll also have this on our website is www.turing.ac.uk slash W-I-D-S-A-I. And one particular thing that they have on there is a diversity dashboard. And this is a tool that companies can use to put a quantitative lens on how genders in their company are interacting. And it's it sort of feels like a rough tool, but one that will get the conversation started. And there are a couple of things that I feel like make it like a nice first step, but are perhaps a, a little a little broad. So it looks at GitHub and Slack interactions between people identified as male and female. Anyone who doesn't fit the binary gets put into other which can is problematic. And also the the fit sometimes is decided by the gender of your first name or what is the recognized gender of your first name, which which also feels like it could be a little bit slippery and have a lot to do with who's doing the defining. But it I think it is a nice way to sort of open the conversation, to sort of like think about this as a formal way to say is there a question here? Perhaps perhaps not strong enough to say what we should do or, or even what the question is, but is there a question here? And I think that's, that's an important first step to be able to have conversations in this space that are productive or can be mindful, can be planful about how people are interacting and how people from different backgrounds are interacting. But it, yeah, so I don't know. Have you, have you taken a look at this? What do you think? Very interested in diversity, but I think there should only be one way of doing it. No, that would be... <laughs> it's challenging, isn't it? Because... What I think the tool allows you to do is look at the number of check-ins or comments that your different genders are getting as they work with Slack and GitHub, which are often the main tools of production of code. But I was thinking as I was looking at the tool, well, presumably this could also be used for fairly nefarious things. It reminded me of... There are tools that people are proposing for monitoring hate speech online on Twitter. Sort of, can we detect when there's a problem with hate speech? And then you think, well, and if the government is using this tool to monitor hate speech in an area where there's a lot of tribal activity, tribal meaning existing tribes where there are potentially tensions, let's say Rwanda, well, at what point is hate speech actually not hate speech and it's political dissent? Such tools can be used for both purposes. And that was one thing that made me slightly nervous about it. But the thing I like about it is it, it raises a very, very important issue that you can actually see the factors that are driving a lack of participation. You can see why aren't female coders committing as much if they're not, or why or how are they committing? I think raising those ideas and thinking about them may be important. I don't think I've plugged this book on Talking Machines yet, but I, I want to plug Matthew Syed's new book, which is not available in the States yet, called Rebel Ideas. 
Now, what I like about the approach in Rebel Ideas is it's, and maybe maybe there's something, maybe people would argue that this isn't the right approach, but I, I quite like it. It, it. It's just an argument for cognitive diversity. The entire book is a list of examples about how things go wrong with homogeneous thinking. And one of the things that comes up, what's the, what's the Supreme Court Justice Scalia? At one point, it was, I think, the Scalia fallacy, but I think he's changed it to something else in the book. Because Scalia, I think, had a ruling on the Supreme Court where, or a statement where he said, you can either be super duper or diverse. You can't have both. And that's a fallacy, right? Because, of course, diversity is about using different ways of thinking about a problem and combining them. Matthew actually has some really great diagrams that just illustrate this, like like really simple ones in the book where he just draws a box and then he says, this would be a homogeneous, homogeneous. I can't say that word. This would be a group where everyone thinks the same. Greek for same type. Uh, so but he sort of he draws it very nicely. So, so here's the box of the sort of space of thinking we could be doing. And here's here's your I can't say the word anymore. Group of people that think the same. And then drawing circles. He just draws the circles very, very overlapping. And then he has, well, here's your cognitively diverse group. They are spread out with circles. I think actually, and this is one thing that I talked about here with him a lot. I can't remember if it comes through in the book. Importantly, when you're building such a group there must be overlap. If there are not ways for these cognitively diverse people to communicate, you will have a mess. You'll have a bunch of independent people disagreeing with each other. So you can't just form these groups magically. So I, I can't remember if he draws it quite like that, but I always think of it as, or the way I rethink of it, if he doesn't draw it like that, is that the, the, the circles have to have some overlap so that there's some sort of shared understanding which people can communicate about, but they're also bringing something different. And then you cover a wider space. It's a great book because it gives so many examples, including it starts off with uh, the FBI's failure to understand Osama bin Laden because they were not cognitively diverse and they didn't understand the imagery that bin Laden was using. So I think that that, that approach is also, I, I think, is very very useful. But I, I also believe in a diversity of approaches. I think that the notion of diversity continues to work. So we don't know how we fix that. And I think this dashboard approach is, is, is very, very interesting. Even if it's not going to be the way to do things, it's out there as a thing. And that's great to have something out. It's, it's a conversation starter. And you can maybe look at it and say, well, I'm uncertain about that bit. Maybe I would change that bit. I, and you can imagine, I'm not sure if it's got the capability. The thing that when my group was working well, well, and I think it off, often was working well, the, the thing I could check is that, say, the code reviews between different people were balanced and people were being able to were being polite to each other and contributing in a constructive way. And I, I think that that shows a lot of functionality in the group. If you've got code reviews where people are going and telling people they're idiots and they can't code, then you've got the wrong atmosphere in the group. And when I initially heard the dashboard, I wondered if it was doing some of that type of analysis. I don't think it's doing that yet, but you could imagine that it could extend in that sort of direction, do some intent, make sure that, uh, I mean, I think almost that would be more interesting. What is the nature of interaction ac across the genders? Like, is, are there asymmetries? I think that- the, It's a conversation starter. Yeah. You know, if you start to pull, a, and maybe there's dangers in this approach too, but if you start to sort of say, well, it seems that 
male software engineers when they communicate with female software engineers if you've got sufficient statistical representation are you know being overly dismissive or something like that or reacting in a different way to when they communicate with males and vice versa then then maybe there's, there's something you can work on to fix yeah yeah absolutely and i think i think that the best thing that we can do is because now you get into the and and here we also have the problem of like identification of gender from your name right who is deciding what gender a name carries or what gender a person carries but if we can say if we can at least say there is a difference then there is a thing to look at perhaps it is always dangerous to say what difference there is but if we can say there is a question here to pay attention to uh then i think that that is useful information to carry around and I, I thought it was a great point you were making earlier about how do we, and I think perhaps looking at pronouns is maybe a way to go there, that people are self-identifying more with different pronouns. It's not easy, by the way. I have a close friend um, who has a, a daughter that is now they, and it is interesting, you know, you have to pause and think about it, but I think that that is worth doing and i'm seeing wider acceptance of that absolutely yeah and that, like at the conferences it's become a thing where there are gendered pronoun stickers that you can put on your name tag so that it easily introduces the conversation and i think that we have to that's the kind of like oh labeled data it all comes back to labeled data right if you can actually reach a place where you are self-identifying and providing those like accurate labels for the data point that you are, that's going to be, that's going to take a huge step forward. Then it crosses that boundary between being a data point of action and a data point of observation, right? If you are labeling your own data for the world, that is going to be closer to the truth that you experience than if someone is observing you and putting something on you. It takes a lot, though. But then there's this other complexity, which is, you know, the, the thing I think you were hinting at earlier on. It's like, do I want to be identified for my commits, for my gender, or for the quality of the software I'm putting in? And this is so difficult because, it, of course, you want to be identified for the quality of the software, you, you know. And that's the way we should be doing it. But unfortunately, we can't pick apart the depth and extent of the problem unless we have the labels sufficiently. Actually, there's a nice example of this that comes up with CVs. If you remove gender identity from a CV, then you don't know to compensate for the fact that someone potentially may have taken more time out of their career at particular stages due to being the main child carer of course we in an ideal world absolutely child you know and that's the sort of thing people go well but child caring should be shared equally between the genders you know and, and then this wouldn't be problems yes well I, you know unfortunately it isn't and that's it's quite widespread that there's there some wonderful examples we can give where it is shared more equally or uh, the main caregiver is um the non-traditional caregiving gender but the the truth is the, the general case is 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 the one that bakes in previous societal prejudices so you sort of do need that information to unpick this stuff yeah absolutely one cool thing happening on ada lovelace day sort of a loose connection but also also go look up ada lovelace do that reading
super cool. You know, just refresh yourself about amazing women in historically in computing. That's right. Um, we will have a link to the Alan Turing Institute's diversity dashboard and women in data science and AI project on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. And if you've got a question about Ada Lovelace or anything else, you can email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet us at TLKNGMCHNS. This week's guest on Talking Machines is Corinna Cortez, who is the head of Google Research New York. And when we sat down with her, we asked her the same question we ask all of our guests first. How did you get where you are? Oh, that's long. <laughs> that's very long. I had my first computer science course when I was about 16 years old. It was absolutely horrible. I couldn't understand one bit of it. It was uh, We had tapes and cards and all these things, and uh, I found it very confusing, and I didn't do very well. I probably got what is equivalent to a C or something <laughs> like that. But I, I, in a way, I really liked math and, and science and all these things, so I kind of flirted with going in that direction, but then I felt it wasn't very cool. So I started on something. My first study was theology. Now, you have to take that with a grain of salt because I'm Danish and we have a state religion in Denmark. Mm. So it's not uncommon for women to be priests and uh, they can have families and all these things. But I realized very quickly that I wasn't very strong in my beliefs. So um, it was probably not a good direction to go into. So I changed to something else and that was uh, Danish literature. And I wasn't very good at that either Ooh. because I was really strong at math and physics. And what, what really changed the whole thing was that just like in, in the U.S., the Danish universities, they closed in January and I needed money. So I took a job at a conveyor belt. It was back in 1980 and it was very popular to you know, associate with the working population and being at a conveyor belt, I thought was very meaningful. But all the other students that for January had decided on they wanted to take a job like yeah. this turned out to be engineering students <laughs> and physics and chemistry students. So I, I quickly learned that these were actually really nice people, right? And you could hang out with them and you could have a beer after work and you could go to the movies and go on ski trips with them. So come February, I started in science and that has been my slow path to getting into. I started first in physics and math. I got my master's degree from Denmark in physics. Then I went to computer science and uh, I went to the U.S. because I had an advisor in Denmark that was from the U.S. and uh, he got me a summer internship at back then Bell Labs. And mm. uh, so the second day I I was in the U.S. I started at Bell Labs, and I kind of never left for the next 15 years. I did manage to get my Ph.D. in computer science, though I wasn't there very much. I spent most of my student days at Bell Labs, and that's where I, I really got into machine learning. It was in the early days of neural networks, and we had a lot of fun doing that. So that's that's kind of how I ended up in, in machine learning. A lot of coincidences uh, but a lot of thanks to uh, 
a vacuum cleaner factory where they needed help at the conveyor belt. That's fantastic. That's I love I love that uh, that your compatriots on the on the line were all science and engineering students who were also looking for looking for a job over university break. So now you are with Google and in uh, working in in Google AI. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the projects that you are really excited about right now? Yes, I, I absolutely can. So I should just say that, of course, I, I'm very excited about all everything that's happening in machine learning. That's, after all, my, my background. And there are some new areas that have popped up in, in machine learning over the last couple of years, areas we didn't even think about uh, 10 years ago. Things like fairness and controllable or explainable machine learning um, is, is a completely new area that I find very fascinating. I find interesting also all the undevised machine learning that we have to do nowadays. There are some very big challenges in privacy and uh, security of the data that I really think that we are, we are getting a handle off, but it's still just in its infancy. But I'm in general very excited about a lot of the work that's going on. I have a, I have like a little bit of a computer science department here in New York. Mm. You may not realize, but uh, Google is is actually turning to be a fairly old company. We are turning 21, I think, oh, wow. um, in just a few days. The research group in New York is nothing less than 16 years old these days. Wow. Yes. So I was the second researcher to be hired into the research group in New York. There was just one that had come a few months before. Back then, we were just a a small group in New York. We were about 25 people, and uh, the office was in Times Square. Since then, I think we have grown to about 9,000 people here in New York. So it has changed quite significantly. But also, we have... expand it from just working on a few areas to working in, a, in pretty much everything that you can find in a computer science department. So we have, of course, machine learning, we have computer vision, we have speech recognition, we have natural language processing, information retrieval, structured data, market algorithms, optimizations, graph algorithms, the whole thing, privacy, fairness, as I say. Mm. And all of these areas are deeply fascinating. They, they don't stop coming up with new, interesting problems to work on. But I think if one thing that I'm, I'm really happy to have here in New York is, is a big effort around fact-checking. This is uh, key to many of Google's products, that we have good, sound, healthy information to serve back to the users. We're not doing any fact-checking ourselves. Google is a portal, right? Everything that is uploaded to the web that can be scraped and indexed and retrieved later on, you can find on Google and you should be able to find on Google. So there's, a, there's of course, a lot of active misinformation out there and Google can get fooled by some of, of this information. One of the most famous uh, unfortunate event we had was after the 2016 election where we, as the top result the next day, said that Donald Trump, he won the popular vote. Mm. Um, There are a number of bad actors out there that take advantage of these high-profile events to generate material. And it's very, very hard for algorithms to parse and understand all this material, what is true and what is not true, 
we kind of just have the algorithms running in the back end and we serve back to the users what, what seems to be high quality information. We've been working for a number of years now in collaboration with uh, Bill Adair from Duke University, mm -hmm. the International Fact-Checking Network, and schema.org, and come up with a markup language so that the computers have an easier time reading some of the fact-checking articles out there. A fact-checking article is typically about a statement that somebody has made, and there's a, somebody, an investigative uh, journalist, uh, checks into the information and writes a verdict that can be pants on fire or you you name it. But it's, as I say, it's very hard for a computer to understand this article, to find out what was the verdict. And therefore, we have come up with this markup language that the journalist can attach to the fact-checking article that clearly states, you know, there's a field for who said this, uh, what was the claim, and what is the verdict on the claim. Now, when Google then scrapes all the web pages out there, then we come across this markup language and we can now serve it back to, to, the, to our audience as a, a fact check. The good question is, of course, who is fact-checking the fact-checkers? Now, do we serve any, anything back as a fact-check uh, just because it has the markup language on it? No, we don't. That's where we have the collaboration with the International Fact-Checking Network because they are checking the fact-checkers and making sure that they are fact-checkers that have been blessed for doing sound journalism, for doing thorough research. So those are typically the fact-checkers from which we will be serving the fact checks from. So this is this is something that is I'm very excited about. Um, we have also started a collaboration with the National Academy of Sciences because there's a lot of voids in health information. Mm. What is what is factual, what is not. So we have started giving giving them grants to exploring that they take a number of topics. And again, we're not telling them what to write in, in these fact checks, but exploring for them, coming up with health in, uh, information, uh, trustworthy, objective, evidence-based information that they can, they can write fact-checking articles around. This has actually led to a portal that the academies they have called Based on Science, where you can go maybe and read about whether vitamin K is good for mm. you uh, or for newborn babies, whether vaccines are, are healthy or it's, there's evidence that, that they can be bad for you. So that's, that's really one of the, the, the big things that's, that's happening and Google is investing a lot in it. Both, of course, there's a lot of, of political information, but also try to broaden it out as much as possible to to areas outside that. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds it sounds fascinating and truly amazing. Do you feel like this this work around fact checking and distribution of high quality information is related to at all the movement in the field where we see more attention focused on the technical ideas of fairness and transparency? Are we seeing sort of a awareness in the practitioner community to move in this direction? And so we see more of the work being done in these areas, both technically and in terms of application, just because like this is a direction the field needs to move in? I actually think that that is a different area mm -hmm. because that is the science area where this is more the public opinion that we're trying to get information about political claims or health checks. 
the whole area around fairness is, is somewhat different. It's a very interesting trend because, as I said earlier, this is not something we thought about 10 years ago. Absolutely. And we probably should have thought yeah. about it. But, <laughs> but uh, we have... We happily closed our eyes and uh, and didn't pay attention to it. It's actually it's actually a very difficult question, even for a company like like Google. Mm-hmm. Right? There are a lot of questions that that are for the PR group of of, of Google to take care of. Um, I think as a researcher, some of the things that we can do is is simply develop the algorithms. So the second that we have a good answer to what we should be doing, we have the algorithms ready. We can also tell people a little bit about what is possible algorithmically to correct for in the data. But I don't want to be the innocent person in, 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 the, in the spectrum because I really think the, the research community should, should focus and develop a lot of tools for, for detecting these biases mm. and for correcting for them. But sometimes it can be a hard question to find out what do you actually do? What is the right thing to right. do? And that's probably not where where my research group shines the, <laughs> the most, but we're very good at finding the algorithms. Yes, yeah, absolutely. The the what is fairness is coupled with the question of like the technical question of how you approach a way to come up with something that is fair, right? And then who decides who decides what that that looks like on the other end? But can you tell me a little bit more about some of the algorithms and works that you're exploring in your group on on the sort of designing the technical side of these approaches that could allow for shifting or unbiasing or allow this work towards towards the around the technical idea of fairness? Yes, I want to start out with saying that it's actually really really difficult for a company to address these issues in and so far that we are not allowed to collect the labels. Mm-hmm. We are not allowed to ask people for for their gender, their age, uh, their political affiliation, and, and to get the labels so that we can work with those. So we... It, it seems like it should be so easy for us to to just collect the labels and then correct the algorithms, but it's it's not the way it works because we actually don't have access to these labels. Right. Um, we don't have a secret re- repository of of labels that we can check things on, but we can develop the algorithms under the hypothesis that we had some labels, for instance, mm-hmm. and we can try to design the algorithms so that if there are two groups where one is a minority and one is majority. We can make sure that they're they're treated the same way. We can talk about false positive, false negatives, and make sure that that constraints are met with that they are not more false positives from from one group than for the other group. We can also work on what we can call controllable or explainable machine learning, where you can explicitly put into the model that something is monotone and something, and it's not influenced by another input parameter. So these are some of the things that we are doing here, developing the optimization tools and designing algorithms that build in these fairness constraints. Mm -hmm. Another thing that is slightly related is everything around privacy. Mm -hmm. There has been a lot of of new work and also from from my team around an area called federated learning. Federated learning, when I first heard the terminology, I thought, why do we need a new word for distributed learning? Because it's nothing but that. It's think of think of that you 
I thought it was nothing but that, mm. I should say. So you do a, you have a lot of actions on your telephone, right? And we want to, in the old days, we would just send all that data up to a central server that would come up with a model and send that model back out to you as an update. So in federated learning, it's a different model that we're working with, different setting. The models are updated on device and only the changes and models are sent up to the central server where a new model may be constructed from these small changes that everybody has been doing. Now, it doesn't solve all the privacy issues, but it solves a lot of that the data doesn't leave your device anymore. One thing that we have come out with uh, over the last month is that no keyboard data anymore for Google phones leave the device mm. anymore. Oh, wow. So that is in, in, in next word predictions, uh, Across all languages worldwide, the data, it stays on your phone. What we do send up to the server is the changes in models, but those we also have to add privacy to. We add noise to them so that you, your vocabulary doesn't go straight up to the server and get, gets blended into the model. Mm -hmm. So we work on, on how to put privacy. Privacy is typically noise. And that means that the, the model updates are not as good as they could have been had it not been added noise to it. But how do we add noise in such a way that the final model is still good, but we're hiding your private information? There's also a compression issue. We don't want to send too much information upstream to the server. Right. Uh, typically, you have a better bandwidth going downstream. So how can we compress and still add noise? There can be issues around the distributional properties that you can imagine the tech-savvy people are the ones that are very much on the network, and that's the gradients that you get. However, the final model is pushed out to everybody in the world, so they may have a different user uh, profile. So how can we try to make sure that it's a model that's good for everybody? So those are some of the very interesting research and very challenging research problems that we are facing. But Google is getting somewhere. We are getting far. I mean, being able to turn off a central logging for all keyboard data is significant. And, and we are very happy about that. Other on-device efforts that we have had to, to deal with is uh, we started out in speech recognition many years ago, 16 years ago. Uh, Google didn't have speech recognition. And we built a very very good, healthy um, algorithmic platform for speech recognition. And in came all these deep neural networks, right? Mm -hmm. And they, they revolutionized performance. I must say that uh, for, for language modeling and speech recognition, they, they, have, they have been amazing. But there's a little but, and that's the, these models are often giant. Mm -hmm. they, um, they don't work very well on your phone, or you would be without battery in pretty much no time. <laughs> so we've had other algorithmic challenges and compressing them down to something small and effective that we can ship back out to the to the phone. So that's that's just another aspect of all the on-device um, areas, algorithmic challenges that we have these days. And uh, it's it's been very interesting to to go through this uh, this shift in that everybody everybody's data and every processing is done 
up in the cloud somewhere so that it's actually happening on device. Uh, first, it was a push towards or against that you're not always connected. It's not always that you have a good network and you sh should still be able to use some of the functionality on your phone. But now it's increasingly also it's privacy, it's your data, it should stay on the phone. So how do we limit the interaction with the cloud? Nice. Fascinating. Do you think that it's that the next big question to answer when we are thinking about federated learning and privacy and leaving information and data on the source where it was created as a way to address questions of, of privacy and things like that, do you think that the next large stumbling block there is is going to be simply around we th how we think, how we handle information as opposed to how are we going to get better compute or how are we going to move things faster or how are we going to exchange packets more quickly? What do you think is the next big question that will open up many more actionable questions in this space, in this area? I think one of the, the big things that we are facing is, um, is trust. Mm. Because while we may be devising all these algorithms that ensures that the data doesn't leave the phone, we'll come out with, with announcements that it isn't. I'm not quite sure people, they will understand it well and take it, and take it for, for granted that this is actually what is happening. I think the stumbling block for us to get even further is a mechanism, easy mechanism by which people can see where their data is. Mm. It's like the TV ad, like it's 10 o'clock at night. Do you know where your data is? <laughs> I really think that we have to come up with a set of tools where you can easily see that now if I flick this single switch and thereby the search results I get are completely different and I can see there's an advantage for me and in uh, turning back on the, the personalization the, uh, so that I, I get more relevant data. If we manage to create tools that allow people to trust and really feel that they're in control of where their data is, that's when I think that we can start doing some very interesting new things. But right now, I'm not sure that the trust is there. Mm -hmm. Do you think in order to build that trust, we'd need more education? We'd need our, the lay population who's using these tools, not the people who are making them, to be better educated about what actually happens to their information when they use these tools? I think we definitely need a lot of education. I'm not quite sure how we can reach outside the mm. computer-savvy people. That's that's a, going to be a UI challenge. Right. Um, for us to overcome, because I think that you and I, we can maybe be convinced that that things are happening the right way, but there's a lot of other people out there, and we need to make sure that they feel that we are doing the right thing. I'd like to have a lot more interactions also around privacy and 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 security. It tends to be that the companies are maybe very private about what they are doing. We're doing a lot. And it's a pity the world doesn't know more, <laughs> but but we are we are, we are actually doing a lot, and I'm I'm hoping that maybe we can build some some challenges that uh, academia can solve together with us, so you can, academia can get a better insight to to what we have done already and and how they can help us get the next 
uh, step forward. Um, I'd like to invite everybody to, uh, if they work in this area, to come visit us here in New York. Um, there's not enough knowledge about how wonderful New York has become as a tech scene. Just 16 years ago, when I started here, there was Google, and that was pretty much it. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a small office, but now it has grown significantly. There are lots of startups in the, in the area. Facebook has a big office. Microsoft has an office. It's a happening scene, so uh, don't think that it's just Silicon Valley that has all the, the tech industry of of. Uh, of the U.S., uh, New York City has a, is an important center, so I just uh, will encourage everybody to consider that for their next tech stop. Absolutely. And do you feel like, how how is the culture different in the tech scene in New York from Silicon Valley? I feel like the culture in Silicon Valley gets a lot of attention and sometimes gets shown to be kind of absurd. What do you feel like are the hallmarks of the the East Coast tech scene culture? Diversity, I would say. Mm. We are we are not as homogeneous as as uh, Silicon Valley is. We're used to that. You go out in the streets of New York City, you have people of all kinds of backgrounds and political affiliation. You name it, um, you can find it in the streets. Just walking down one block. And I think that gives us a special perspective of our responsibilities towards society. What is society, actually? Um, a, a view that that may be more hidden in in in, uh, in Silicon Valley because it's it's much more uh, uniform. Here, as a when fun thing is that at Google we talk about the Google fifteen or Google ten or how much it may be, mm. which is how many pounds that you gain when you start. Uh. At Google. <laughs> Because there's, because there's food all over, right? And and people just can't control them. It's very good food, I should say. Um, though I actually think I think the quality is better in New York than it is in Silicon Valley. In New York, we don't gain those 10, 15 pounds. Mm. There's there's no way we would do that because there's an outside world all the time. In Silicon Valley, you know, you go to work and you get into your car and you sit in your car for a long time and you, all your friends, they're working in the tech industry and, and that's just different here. You get out from work and you walk to the subway and they're, you know, especially when we were in, in, in Times Square and now we're kind of also in a fashion district, right? Yeah. There are a lot of other people and, and, uh, and I think we just have a, healthier, more balanced view of the world and our our place in, in, in society. Um, Fantastic. So. so if you want perhaps wider horizons and a smaller waistline, the, the New York the New York City tech scene is for you. I I would recommend it, yes. <laughs> Fantastic. Well Corinna, thank you again so much for all of your time. We really appreciate it. Corinna Cortez head of Google Research in New York. Well, that is it for us on this episode of Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Tune in next episode. 